So we're going to have our first reading, and that's going to come from Matthew chapter 2, and Rachel Nichols is going to read that for us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this was what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, we're going to think a little bit more carefully about this story that we've been thinking about this morning, the wise men. So uh, Matthew chapter 2. And part of the reason we wanted to have our P6s and P7s here with us is that we could sort of show them what we normally do in big church whenever they're out uh, next door because they'll be joining us before too long uh, in here. So uh, we might want to turn it up. We might want to turn up to to Matthew uh, chapter 2 and those verses that we read earlier, that story of the visit of the wise men. It's page 966. Your leaders will help you get that. 966 of the, the Pew Bibles. Now, Let's think about this story a little bit more difficult. We don't, or more, more carefully, we don't really know exactly who these wise men were, as we said earlier. They might have come from Babylon. And one of the reasons we think they might have come from Babylon is because people like Daniel had gone there in the exile uh, about 600 years earlier. And these men were obviously. Uh, familiar with the Jewish scriptures. They knew something of the prophecies about Jesus. And that's why we perhaps think they might have come uh, from Babylon. Now, we don't really know what it was they saw either. The Bible describes it as a star. That could have been the conjunction of two stars. It could have been a a comet, all sorts of things that perhaps it, it could have been. But something that happened in the skies, and they were astronomers and astrologers, and they believed all that the things that happened in the skies had a significance, uh, had a connection to the things that were happening on the earth. And uh, that was how God spoke to those particular uh, people. And something that was happening caused them to realize that there was something going on on the earth. Some people saw an Old Testament reference in Numbers 24, 17 as an indication that the coming Messiah would be heralded in the skies. This is what it says. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And because of people like Daniel, they might well have been aware of 
uh, verses like that. Well, if they came from Babylon to come back to uh, the land of Israel, uh, that journey would have taken about six or eight weeks, and they would have uh, had probably many servants with them, and it would have been a really, really major undertaking. probably means that they were quite well off as well if they were able to take time to make that sort of journey. And the thing that they saw in the sky, the star that they saw in the sky, doesn't seem to have always been there, or at least its points it seems to have been uh, covered or whatever. And so they come uh, naturally to uh, Jerusalem uh, thinking that if there's a king to be born, he's going to be born in a palace. And they, they, they ask something very, very significant whenever they come to see Herod. Now, if you see it, it's in verse 2, and uh, it's not this. I'm going to get you guys, some of you guys can, can, can read it out, okay? So, uh, you see in verse 2, it says, uh, it doesn't say, where is the one who has been born who will be the king of the Jews? What does it say? Where is the one who, can you see it? has been born king of the Jews. Not where is the one who will be the king of the Jews, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews. That's really, really significant. Normally, whenever a baby is born into a royal family, even if that baby is going to be the heir to the throne, if he's a boy, he's going to be the king, he would have to grow up and he would go through a coronation. We're going to see a coronation this incoming year. We would see a a, a coronation and then they would be the king. But the wise men do not say, where is the one born who's going to become the king of the Jews? They say, where's the one who is the king of the Jews? He's been born king. That's really unusual. He's already the king. It's a remarkable thing to say. And he's the king because he doesn't have to go through a coronation. God has appointed him as king. He's been made king already. Now, of course... There was somebody doing that job of king in Israel. Who was that? Who was the guy who was the king? King Herod, acted by Charlie. <laughs> Absolutely. King Herod. And sorry to say this, Charlie, but was Herod a goodie or a baddie? He was a baddie. He was. I'm afraid he was. But they're always the best parts to get, aren't they? You can really get yourself into the baddie parts. Well, Herod was not a good guy. Let's tell you why Herod was not a good guy. Herod came to power. He was born about uh, 72 BC. Now, if you, and he he died in 4 BC. And if you can't think, well, how come he died before Jesus was born? Well, actually, the monks who made up the calendar missed a few dates here and there. And we think that Jesus was born about 7 BC. So so that's why. But anyway, uh, Herod was born about 72 BC. And uh, he became king about 40 BC, and uh, he ruled for 30-odd years or so, died 4 BC. And uh, Herod was a, a very able ruler. He, he was very good at building, at agriculture, at commerce. He gained great wealth, made the whole land very, very wealthy, and uh, they invested that wealth back into great building projects. He, he built a great uh, city on the coast called Caesarea uh, after Caesar, 
and it had fountains and running water and all sorts of things that, that weren't common in cities in those days. It was a real showpiece. And then as far as the Bible is concerned, he, he built the temple, he reconstructed the Jewish temple, Herod's temple. Began that in 19 BC, and it continued after his death for almost 80 years, and it was an incredible project. Some of us have... have uh, uh, seen pictures of what the temple would have looked like. Some of us have been there. And all that remains of it are these stones that's on the screen at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem because in 70 AD, the temple was uh, destroyed by the Romans. But Herod was the one who was responsible for doing all of that building. He was a, a hugely capable ruler. And it's because of that that he was given the name Herod the Great. But just because he was great at being a king doesn't mean that he was a good king. Because there was a darker side to his reign, he was really, really bloodthirsty. You know, if some of you watch these horrible histories program, Herod could get a program all of his own. He wasn't a true Jew by ancestry, and so whenever he came to power, he slaughtered, he killed any of the previous royal family members in case they would say that they had the right to the throne. He executed more than half of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He slaughtered 300 court officers just out of hand. And when he was nearing the end of his life, he knew that he was going to die. And he put an order in place. Now, here's your horrible histories reference. He put an order in place that in every city and town in the land, they would kill some of the leaders so that even if they weren't sad that Herod had gone, they would be sad. Isn't that incredible? What a, an incredible man. He said, apparently, they may not mourn me, but they will mourn. So that, that, fact, that order was never carried out just as well, but uh, that's what he wanted to do. That's the sort of guy he was. He had several wives, and when he suspected one of them was a threat to him, even though he, she was his favorite, she, he had her killed as well. He killed two sons, not great to be a son of Herod, uh, who were to be his heirs, and then he executed some more of his sons. Uh, his, his grip on power was so fanatical that he just didn't want anything to counter it. So whenever we understand that there's a, a threat to Herod, when he thinks he's threatened, we can understand what it says in verse 3, that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, because you can see that actually if uh, Herod was annoyed, Everybody was scared in case he was going to lash out. Something else we should see about Herod. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows who he's dealing with. Because he's not only dealing with a king, he realizes, he's dealing with God's appointed king, the Messiah or the Christ. And the reason that we know that is because Whenever, in verse 4, it says, he called all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law together, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Not the king, but the Christ. So he knows that the one who has been predicted and the one who the wise men have come to see and to worship is not just a king, but he is God's king. He is the Messiah, the Christ. Any Jew should have been delighted that the Messiah was coming in their lifetime, but not Herod. He was thinking, there's already a king in my life, and that's me, and I'm not going to share my throne with anyone, and I'm not going to give it up, 
I will not have this one to rule over me. So he's a remarkable figure. You, you, you just begin to think of him, aware that God's Messiah is coming, the one who's been predicted and promised and prophesied for thousands of years, and he chooses to stand against God and to say, I will work against what you are working towards. It's quite a frightening picture. I will oppose what you are doing. It's so sinister. But you know what? It is a picture of what we are like as people, picture of the human heart, when it is faced with the ultimate claim of Christ over us to be our king, if that heart is not made soft by God. That's a big thing to think about. But the claim is made for all of us. Here is Jesus. He is your king. What are you going to do with him? And left to ourselves, our hearts will say, I don't want you to be my king. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're not as angry as Herod, but they reject Jesus too. Because they know exactly what the Bible has to say about the arrival of this king. They know where he will come into the world. They know he'll come into the world in Bethlehem. They can recite the verse. You see it there in verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Might even have been that they didn't have to look it up. They, they'd memorized it. They knew it. Micah 5 verse 2 it is from. And yet they do not, though they know the answers, they don't seek Jesus out or worship him. They're indifferent to Jesus. Now, actually, that's just another way of rejecting it. Sometimes people are really angry, and they say, Jesus, I I'm not, I'm not, don't want anything to do with God. Sometimes other people just go, oh, well, yeah, I'll just not bother with that. And it doesn't look as cross, but it's actually just going in exactly the same direction. And we see that actually... Later on, these people and their successors, they were the ones who plotted to kill Jesus. So just ignoring God really takes us to the same place. Now, what does this mean for us? Here, here's, here's what we try to do with the Bible. It's what you guys do in kids' ministry. It's what we do here. We go, what does this mean? What is it saying? And what's its big lesson for us? What does it mean for us? Well, with both Herod and the religious leaders... They were people who knew about Jesus, they knew about God, they, they had all the facts, they had the right answers, but they didn't have what was really necessary. They didn't seek him out to worship him. They didn't put their faith in him. And that's really important for us to think about. You know, we have, many of us, have grown up with many, many privileges. Not least the fact that we know lots of things about Jesus. We, we go to kids' ministry. We, we maybe were brought up through Sunday school. We, we had all sorts of privileges to know about Jesus. But we've got to know that knowing the right answers is not enough. We must worship him. He must be our king. Yes, well, let's jump back into our story. So if we've got our Bibles, we'll, we'll get back into this little passage again. It's page 966, Matthew chapter 2. Where have we got to? Our wise men have visited Herod. They know where Jesus is going to be born. And now what happens is that, Jesus, that, that uh, Herod sends them off to find Jesus. 
and uh, the star reappears and confirms their path. And we find it says, uh, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, all of this happens sometime after Jesus' birth. Uh, Jesus is probably between one and two at this stage. His family have uh, settled into a house. Verse 11 tells us that. And what do they do whenever they find him? Well, again, we see it in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. So Herod and the religious leaders, they show us how not to treat Jesus. But the wise men really show us how we should treat Jesus. And part of the way the Bible deals with us is it tells us stories. And it says, now put yourself in this story. Where would you be? How how are you treating Jesus? How do the wise men treat Jesus? Well, they, they, they give their gifts to him. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are costly gifts. People have often said they're symbolic. Gold was the gift for a king. So this is who Jesus is. We've been saying this all all through our service. His, his claim to rule extends over all people. And so we either live in rebellion against this king or we live in submission to the king. That's the, the, the choice. Frankincense. Not sure which one of those is frankincense. Gold's the one in the middle. Frankincense is some of the wee nuts that are on either, either side. Uh, they were all spices. Frankincense is a gift for a priest. Priest represents somebody to God. And, and the one, he's the one who stands between God and us and offers a sacrifice. And, and, and the, the incense would have been burned as part of that sacrifice. And that's what Jesus comes to do. That's a function that he comes to perform, to be the mediator, the one who stands between us and God. And then myrrh, it's the other one, a gift associated with death. And this is how he would fulfill his function. He would not only offer a sacrifice, but he would be the sacrifice. He would lay down his life so that those who he ruled over might be saved. So they lay their gifts. They, they put themselves and their gifts before Jesus, and they worship. It's what we must do. So, so this is a story, you see, that should surprise us. Those who were, who were expected to welcome Jesus, the religious leaders, they reject him. Those who would be expected to see Jesus as irrelevant, the wise men from far away, they're the ones who seek him out and they worship him as king. And so it says to us, now where are we in the story? Are we seeking Jesus out and worshiping him? Or are we rejecting him? Do we have faith in this king? This word faith is is a word that we hear a lot in church. And we we do need to unpack it a little bit because sometimes we don't think very carefully about it. Faith was was really carefully thought about and examined at a particular period in the life of the church, in the time of the Reformation. It was really uh, recovered the idea of faith in Christ alone at the time of the Reformation. And so the people who were involved in the Reformation thought a lot about faith. I want to just think about that for a moment or two. Faith, they said, has three elements to it. It has, uh, I'm going to see it on the screen, it has a content, it demands an assent, and then it demands trust. Let's, let's think about those a little bit. First of all, there's content. There's got to be something for us to put our faith in. In other words, we've got to know something 
for us, we've got to know something of the gospel message. We've got to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the reformers called this the content of faith, or they had a Latin word for it, the notitia of faith. So there's got to be certain things we've got to know, and that's why we go to kids' ministry. That's why we, we come to church and we open up the Bible and say, what does this say? But that's not enough, because we might know truths about Jesus, and some people might dismiss them and say, oh, they're just made up, or they're not true. And that brings us to the second aspect of faith. We've got to assent to them. We've got to affirm the truth of its content. The Latin word for that was a census, a, a, a conviction that what we hear is true. So not just that we're familiar with the gospel stories, but that we actually believe them. Do we believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do we, do we really believe that he came into this world in space and time and history? Do we believe that he died on a cross for our sins? And then there's another element. That's not enough because there's another element. I meet lots of people who say, well, I just believe it. I, I do believe it, but I haven't really done anything about it. I, I believe it's all true. So they've got to content and assent. I believe it's all true, but I've not done anything about it. And that's the third thing, it's trust. The Latin word for that is fiducia, entrusting ourselves into the hands of Christ. Let me give you an illustration, thought about this. I had to fill my oil tank this week. Most painful thing I have done for months. Like root canal, no problem. Boy, filling your oil tank at the minute, it's pretty brutal. Now imagine there was a rebate scheme dream about this, but imagine there was, a, there was a rebate scheme that Rishi Sunak came up with, and all you had to do was phone this number, and you would have your bill cut in half. It'd be great, wouldn't it? But you had to apply for it. So, first of all, I would have to hear of it. There'd have to be content, you see? I would have to understand how it worked. That's the content. Second, I would have to believe it. I would have to say, well, actually, I believe it. Actually, Rishi Sunak is actually doing this and that I'm eligible for it. I'd have to assent to it. But then the third thing I would have to do, until then, I haven't got my rebate. The third thing I'd have to do is I'd have to phone the number. I'd have to ask for that rebate. You see, you hear the good news. You believe it's for you. And then you say, and I want to have this. Lord, will you have me? That's us, you see. Folks, we've been thinking about these things right through the year. Here we are right at the end of the year. Christmas is a real marker for us, isn't it? Uh, one of those things that we look back and think, oh, it seems only like a couple of months since the last Christmas. But we've been, we've been dealing with these matters of faith. And maybe for some of us, we've been finding our way towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and just as we finish this morning, this Sunday before Christmas, I'm going to put a, a, a prayer up on the screen. It, it's a prayer that just, in some ways, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the, the, the prayer that, that has to be prayed. It's just an example of something that we might want to say to the Lord. If we wanted to say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to come to you. And it, it tries to pick up some of these elements of, of content and of, of assent and then of commitment. This is what it says. Dear Lord, I recognize that I am a sinner and need a Savior. Thank you that your Son 
came into this world to be a savior for sinners, and thank you that he came for me. So there's that content and assent. I entrust myself to him. That's our trust, isn't it? He is the king, and I gladly submit to his rule, and I will seek to follow him all the days of my life. I'm going to pray now. We're going to, I'm going to ask us to pray, and, and, and you might want to just listen. You might not be ready to pray a prayer like that. You maybe, you maybe are a Christian, and that's great. But maybe for some of us, if we're, if we're saying, do you know what? No more. No more holding him at a distance. I'm going to have him as my king. These are the sorts of things we want to say. Pray it along with me. Let me pray.